chapter 12 tonight, please. Romans 12, and we'll be hitting 13 also. Please note that there is a new doctrinal, I don't want to say doctrine sheet, it's um, number 80. It's the lesson number 80, the printed form out on the information table, and it's a very important part of the development of Romans for us, especially with regard to God-approved living. It's called the dynamic state of love, and we made a, a fairly... In reviewing and editing it, I found that we made a pretty advanced leap forward with that doctrine, the dynamic state of love, and we'll be hitting that a little bit more. It's kind of the two legs that we walk on in Romans, the first being the universal saving significance of Christ, the second being how do we live in this turn of the ages? How do we live in a God-approved manner in this turn of the ages. Mike's here, we're ready. Let's take a <laughs> let's have a, a couple moments for prayer. Father, in recognizing the human condition, we understand that sometimes human beings can be our advocate in one moment and be our adversary in another moment. And in contrast with that, Father, we thank you for your constant advocacy of us, your constant defense of us, your constant philanthropy, your steady love, and the security that we can have in your unconditional and unrestricted love. And we pray that you will continue to awaken us to the light that you are, to the love that you are, and vivify us to the life and the livingness that you are. We thank you for this privilege. Thank you for each of your children who opted to come here tonight to hear the word. May each of us receive the maximum of what you desire us to receive tonight, for we ask it in the name of your Son, in whom is the fullness of grace and truth. Amen. Apocalyptic Ethics is the title, this subject tonight. Apocalyptic Ethics, or we could maybe make it singular, an apocalyptic ethic. Or G-A-L, God-approved livingness. I almost said Galatians. God-approved livingness on the right flank of Romans. We're going to engage a little bit in a miniaturized version of the pincer strategy, going first to Romans 12 and then to the, in the beginning and then the end of Romans 13. And to begin, I want to quote something I read from what I consider to be a monumentally important book written by Philip G. Ziegler from Aberdeen, Scotland. He is a wonderful, not only a wonderful theologian in his own right, but of all the people I've read, he understands how to get a take on other great theologians of our time like Jürgen Moltmann. 
Eberhardt, Jungle, and others. And a lot of my job is to take what is kind of a heavy theological study and make it more communicable to an assembly so that we can actually live in a life that is essentially the experience of the kingdom of God. And a quote from him in his book called Militant Grace, I'm still working my way through it, it's a very dense, in a good way. He said this, and I'm going to sort it out for you. He says, the new moral subject, that's you and me, the new moral subject is a gracious creation of the adventitious saving reality of God in Christ. Yeah, like you, I said, what's adventitious? And it's a word that I think really helps to characterize God's grace, adventitious. We get kind of like the word advent comes from it, but adventitious means to that which comes from another source, not being inherent or within us or inborn or innate, as people would say. It refers to that which comes from another source, not being inherent, inborn, or innate. So the new moral subject refers to the saint, the Christian, the new creation in Christ Jesus, because in Ephesians 2.10, we have been created in Christ Jesus unto or into good works which he has prepared for us to walk in. And those are works actuated by love. The new moral subject then is a gracious creation of the adventitious saving reality of God in Christ. So from the human point of view, when God invades a person's life, it seems to arise randomly. It seems to take place randomly because it takes place totally outside of ourselves. It's something done to us, something that we could even say happens to us. God happens to us. Christ happens to us. Redemption, salvation. And so from our viewpoint, it appears to arise randomly, and very often it occurs in an unlikely scenario. For me, it was a dorm room in northern Vermont in the dead of winter. It can also happen in an unusual or unexpected place or in an unexpected person, someone you would not expect the visitation of God to come to, like, say, a Pharisee of the Pharisees on the outskirts of Damascus in 34 A.D., Saul of Tarsus. Or more recently, as I read recently about it, a shaman in the rainforest of Venezuela who, being possessed of many spirits, experiences them all flying away from him when he sees Yaipada, he calls him, the creator spirit, Christ Jesus, who appeared to him like a thousand suns, he said in the 19th, or actually the 20th century, somewhere between 1950 and 1980. He tells his story. 
in the book called The Spirit of the Rainforest. So God invades a person's life when he sees fit to, whether it's a Pharisee of the Pharisees in the first century or a shaman in the jungles of Venezuela in the 20th century. From a human point of view, it appears to be almost a chance or a random happening. It just happens. Our salvation, then, is entirely and radically adventitious in that it came to us entirely from outside of ourselves. It's not something that Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, I remember studying him very slightly in college because I just didn't read like I should have, but Immanuel Kant, my new, my mantra about Kant is that Kant can't. And by that I mean that he believed that virtue leads to grace rather than grace leading to virtue, which is the whole gospel. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, was a lot more on the money, and he was massively, massively influenced by the Apostle Paul. I didn't realize that until I realized that there was a second authorship by him, the second part of his writing career in which he was explicitly Christian and defined the Christian life in a way that's much better than many theologians and pastors and evangelists can do it. That also is a study well worth reading in Militant Grace by Philip Ziegler. That's Z-I-E-G-L-E-R if you're looking it up. So our salvation is entirely and radically adventitious in that it came to us entirely from outside of ourselves. Selves that were at one time turned in on themselves. Remember we studied curvaturae in adse. The sickness that sin brings about when sin enslaves us, it puts a burden upon us that turns us in upon ourselves. And we become occupied or preoccupied with ourselves. We become self-absorbed. We become self-deceived. We start to self-justify. And it's a mess. It's the debilitating power of sin. Turns the self in on itself. One of the best examples of this is the woman who Jesus called a daughter of Abraham in Luke 13, 16, had been bowed over for 18 years by Satan. This is a stark picture of the self in curvaturae in ad se, the Latin phrase for curved in upon ourselves. Jesus relieved her of that condition as the great physician as we're studying him and began to study on Sunday, Christus Medicus, the great physician. There's an incurable wound called sin, and there's only one cure, and it's Christ. So our salvation occurs not from ourselves and not even by our own will or intent, but by God's sovereign act in God's sovereign time. That is, as Paul put it in Galatians 1.12 and 1.16, when God is pleased to reveal his son to you. When God is pleased. For by grace you are saved 
through faithfulness. And again, that verse so central to our understanding of soteriology in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you are saved through faithfulness. And I say that because the, the word through faithfulness is diapistios, D-I-A-P-I-S-T-E-O-S, or in the Byzantine text or the majority text, diates pistios, through the faithfulness. is also found in Romans 3.30 in which Paul says the one God, there is one God, and he rectifies the circumcised ek pistios from faithfulness or by the faithfulness of the righteous one that he already established in 117. And the uncircumcised, he rectifies dia tes pistios through the same faithfulness. And so when he writes to a largely uncircumcised group of pagan believers who really wonder what happened to them, what happened to us? Well, Paul said, well, by grace you were saved. Well, what happened to us? Well, being alive and being dead, rather, in trespasses, God made you alive in Christ. He raised you up and seated you together in heavenly places. That's what happened to you. For by grace you are saved through faithfulness. And listen to this next phrase. It's essential. That not of yourselves. Adventitious grace out from a source out from yourselves, away from yourselves, not of yourselves. That faithfulness is not of yourselves. That salvation didn't originate with yourselves. It is the gift of God. Another essential phrase in Ephesians 2a, it is a gift, the gift of God. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As Romans 6.23 says, Gift has to be free. Gift has to be gratuitous. It has to be uncontingent, meaning no necessity or contingency in the receiver of the gift. It's gratuitous without a cause in the recipient. It's adventitious, not of ourselves. If it isn't adventitious, it isn't gift, but it's some kind of paycheck or some kind of response by God to something in the will or the intention or the behavior of mankind. And it's not that. It's a gift. Ziegler goes on to cite Torrance, T-O-R-R-A-N-C-E, who wrote a book called Calvin's Doctrine of Man. Now, I love Calvin as far as he says that salvation is a, an adventitious, gracious, sovereign act of God. But then he'll also say that God only elected some for it. I agree with Calvin up to the point where, yes, it's a sovereign, adventitious act of God in Christ for man, but I say it's for everyone. And God did it for everyone, even though he kind of picks off people one at a time, both in this life and in some cases in the life after death. God doesn't give up on people because they die as if death 
is stronger than God. So he goes on to cite Torrance, who did a study called Calvin's Doctrine of Man. And he said, in conjunction with the Scots Confession, the Scottish Confession, there's the German Heidelberg Confession, there's the Westminster Confession, there's the Scots Confession. I like the Scots Confession, which says that we can, we can and must willingly spoil ourselves of all honor and glory of our salvation and redemption as we also do of our regeneration and sanctification. And that's what we're all about now is GAL, God-approved livingness, just as salvation is adventitious and it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, so is our livingness before God, our sanctification before God. So again, they said, the Scots Confession says that we can and must willingly spoil ourselves of all honor and glory of our salvation and redemption as we do also of our regeneration and sanctification. Now, this is in keeping with our developed theme from Jeremiah nine twenty three to 24 in Romans, which means that God approved livingness, call it the Christian life if you want, the divinely approved Christian life is also a matter of radical adventitious grace in which the moral or ethical subject, that's you and me, has no grounds for boasting, either in terms of will or work. No boasting, no grounds for boasting, neither in terms of will or work, for it is God in us both willing and working to perform that to his own good pleasure in Philippians 2.13. So, as Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 1.12, writing to the Corinthians, he said, for our boast is this. There is a valid boasting, and it's this, Paul said. We do boast, but we boast in this, that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you, not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. And in Philippians 2.13, and I like the God's word translation, it is God who produces in you the desires and the actions that please him. I stole that for our offering, of course. It is God who produces in you the desires and actions that please him. And so in the analogy used by Jesus in a parable in Luke 17, the slave cannot boast if all he does is that which the master moves him to will and to do. To paraphrase the parabolic phrase in Luke 17:10, we are unworthy servants. We only did that which God willed and did in us. And I say paraphrase because they say we are unworthy servants. We're not worthy of praise or reward or anything of that kind because we only did that which was commanded of us. I paraphrase that in our context to say we, speaking of us as moral subjects, are unworthy servants because we only did that which God willed and did in us. What comes to mind is the casting of crowns before the feet of the Lamb in Revelation. 
So we're dealing here with, with what I like to call apocalyptic ethics or singularly speaking with an apocalyptic ethic and I'll explain as we go. We are not dealing here when we deal with what I call God approved livingness. We're not dealing with a reformation of human behavior resulting in the old self continuing to live but acting more acceptably or behaving more worthily. We're not dealing with that. That's almost all human ethics, are, including some human Christian ethics, are directed toward getting the old self to behave more appropriately, to act more worthily, as if they know what that means. In apocalyptic ethics, we are dealing instead with a radical transformation in which the old self is entirely put off and an entirely other self newly created in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2.10. Is put on. And that's a new self that is, we could say, set in motion. A new self that is set in motion by the Spirit of God into works, achievements, accomplishments, to which he or she has been preordained to walk. That's what Paul kind of uses a play on words, not by works, lest any man should boast, but you are his work. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto or toward good works that God has preordained for you to walk in. So an apocalyptic ethic is an entirely Christocentric ethic. It is not I, but Christ living in me. And it's me living in this body in the sphere of a faithfulness that works inside a dynamic state of love. Faith that works by love. Faith or faithfulness, participating with Jesus Christ's own faithfulness, the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness or live in the sphere of or in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. It's a faithfulness that works by love. Galatians 5, 6, in connection with Galatians 2, 20. So, this ethic, if you want to call it that, is not I but Christ living in me. Me living in this body in the sphere of a faithfulness that works inside a dynamic state of love. It is a livingness which is Christ himself. For me, living is Christ. The livingness for me is Christ says Philippians 121. That's not perfect in us, but even now, but then completely. In the future at the Perusia, then we'll be living completely. It is a livingness which is Christ in which dying is a gain. And dying there doesn't just mean physical death is a gain. It means dying in this life is a gain to us. Because the more that we die, say, to our own strength, 
our own Adamic ontology, our own natural preferences in Adam, the more we gain in the kingdom of God, the more we inherit the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so I would say it's a livingness which is Christ in which dying, and that doesn't mean just physical death. Dying is a gain. Philippians one twenty one. Now Paul does apply it to his physical death. He, he views his physical death as a gain of being with Christ completely. Because even now, but then, completely. To depart and be with Christ is far better. But what about departing from self to be more with Christ in this life is far better. I've spent time with Christ in a way that I wish I could spend time with him every day. But it's not always that way. There's been times when it seems that he was my closest friend seated next to me with his arm around me. And I felt the presence so strongly of the Son of God. And I say, why can't I have that all the time? But I have found this. I like spending time with him more than I like spending time with me. So dying to me is gain. It's the gain of spending time with him. And I don't just mean spending time where I feel like I have to pray because he's there, just being there with him. If prayers arise, they arise just like conversation between lovers. You speak to your Lord, the lover of your soul. Sometimes you ask him things. You ask him that kind of thing when you're in that kind of fellowship, you can be sure it'll be done for you and done in a way that exceeds every possible expectation of yours. The first time I prayed in such a way when his fellowship was so rich to me was in Burlington, Vermont, when I lived in an apartment with two or three other guys. And I was not at all sanctified, but I had believed, I had, faith was evoked in me, let's say that. And I had that inexplicable experience of the Son of God that afternoon. And I remember just in the course of the conversation saying, we're having a party here tonight, as you know. And I think it was a keg party. But I said, it's a, and I think I even said that, it's a keg party. And could you turn it into something other than that? Could you turn it into a thing where people inquire about you? And that night, the keg party started. We had a lot of them in those days. And somebody came up to me and said, hey, Nap, I saw you down there at that Jesus Saves place on College Street. And I said, oh, no. Here it comes. I asked for it. And I said, yeah. And they said, those are weirdos. And I said, no, they're not. They, have, they understand the message of Jesus Christ. And then we went in. And then they asked questions. And after question, it was three hours long. The keg party was gone. The drinks were put down. Everybody was surrounding me to the point where when I went into the room that night, I was exhausted and fell on the bed and said, wow, I, don't, I can't imagine a life of doing this. <laughs> but it all started with, 
But, and I didn't have that sense like I did that afternoon. So when the, question, when the prayer was answered, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but he answered it. And, and then some. I mean, that thing turned around so much that I never saw anything like it. And that's what life really is all about. That's what church is about. That's what mission is all about. That's what happens when you kind of, it's, it's a kind of a networking that you don't expect to happen. It's adventitious. It's outside of yourself. It had nothing to do with, oh, you're here, I'm going to pray now. It was like, oh, while you're here, how about if you do this? Okay. Now, this faithfulness that works in a dynamic state of love, God's love, where we learn of God's love for us, where we have confidence in God's love for us, is a participation in Christ Jesus' faithfulness in a state of love. And this state is entirely a state of grace. Entirely. It's brought about by the spirit of grace, as Hebrews 10.29 refers to him. The spirit who causes the love of God to flood our hearts. You get the idea that it floods the heart until it gets all the way up to the top of the heart. And the fourth, what the fancy word for it is the fourth level of human intentional consciousness, where it actually gives rise to acts of benevolence and beneficence, generous spiritedness, kindness, forgiveness, not just forgiveness for, oh, you dropped my oatmeal. Forgiveness for real wrongs that were done to us. Forbearance for people that we might not get along with too well. Acts of love. The love reaches all the way to the top of our hearts, which is the fourth level of intentional consciousness. The fourth level of intentional consciousness isn't where we just ask questions. It isn't where we just reflect. It isn't where we just come to a judgment, but it's where we deliberate and come to decision to act. And that's where love rests. And so we, we love. From the fourth level of intentional consciousness, it can only proceed to the production of acts guided by and filled with love. Radical forgiveness Forbearance, gentleness, self-control. What if someone is your advocate, almost like a PR person for you? They love you so much. They tell everybody about you. What if they turn into your adversary and they tell everybody about you to stay clear of you and leave your assembly? Do you forgive them? Do you hate them? Do you become their adversary? Or do you forgive with radical forgiveness and love them the same way as when they advocated for you? I say that to myself. And I answer before God, before myself, with to myself alone. And that's where you go into prayer and say, Father, transform me into the person that loves my adversary as well as my advocate. The other. For while we were still enemies, God reconciled us. 
That's the love of God. The acts are filled with gentleness, with self-control, with benevolence. So in this God-approved livingness, the moral subject, as Philip G. Ziegler calls him, becomes an agent of benevolence and beneficence like her Lord, who being anointed of God went about doing good, Acts 10.38. From time to time, especially in times of widespread social degeneration, times like that described 2 Timothy 3.1 through In times of widespread social degeneration and historical downtrends in which society seemed to be threatened with extinction, someone may come up with a new way of acting. They may come up with a return to formerly civil ways of acting, child-rearing, marriage, Decency that is supposed to lift the society, the family, the individual up and out of the chaos of lawlessness. And that's a good thing in, in some respects and to one degree, to a degree. So in fact, if such a revived ethic catches on, it may indeed prove to be very helpful in restoring at least a part of society, at least to a relative order, and to restore individuals to be decent and productive members of society. But this is not the ethic I'm talking about. This is not what we're talking about when we speak of apocalyptic ethics. Apocalyptic ethics is not the product of a reformed person who goes from behaving badly to behaving civilly. Nor does it refer to someone going from an active alcoholism or an active addiction to a recovering alcoholic or addict who still must call themselves an alcoholic and an addict. We're not talking about that kind of ethic. It has a place. We're talking about an entire putting off of the moral agent who is under the control of sin itself. Such a person is not an alcoholic, an addict, a sex addict. Paul says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. And he wasn't just yelling at them, because He could say about himself, murderer, such was I. Persecutor, such was I. He didn't say, I'm a recovering persecutor. He said, I was that. Now I'm not that. Now you're justified. Now you're rectified. Now you're sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Apocalyptic ethics is something altogether different. It brings about an entirely new self. Not a reformed self.
but a new moral agent no longer under the control of the sin or of flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, or of the hijacked law. The outworking of an apocalyptic ethic anchored in co-crucifixion with Christ. Co-burial with him. And co-resurrection with Christ. And then actuated by the Holy Spirit. That kind of ethic is displayed in Romans 6, 1 through 8, 13. The outworking of the apocalyptic ethic in the community of saints is displayed in Romans 12, 1 through 15, 13. That's where we are now. We've already gone from 14, 1 to 15, 13. We've already entered into the dynamic state of love with 13, 8 through 14. We're going to hit it again. But we've considered, therefore, this apocalyptic ethic under otherwise called things, otherwise known as God-approved livingness, in Romans 14, 1 to 15, 13, walking in love toward one another in our pincer strategy. So now, in this last part of our message tonight, I want to see it unfurled in Romans 12, 1 to 13, 14. That's all we have left in our breezy exegesis, our fairly light exegesis of the entire epistle of Romans on the right flank. Then, in earnest, we're going to hit the double center, which I've already began this past Sunday with Christus Medicus and indications of Christus Victor and Christus Faber, Christ the doctor, Christ the victor, Christ the builder. I will build my church and the gates of Hades or death will not prevail against it. So then, in its entirety, Romans 12.1, the whole section of Romans 12.1 to 15.13, which is the last verse of the main body of the epistle, then Paul gets into his, a few more exhortations, his travel plans, etc. 12.1 to 15.13 describes the community of saints as operative in a faith that works by love. By its various grace enablements called spiritual gifts or charismata, Romans 12, by love that serves one another without recognition of differences in former Adamic ontology, ethnic roots, or religious practices. So let's see how. So far we have in Romans 12, 1, and I'm building on this each time we go. Look at Romans 12.1, and there's only one or two things I want you to see in this passage. We'll have to go through it again and again, but Romans 12.1. So, by the ever-renewable and renewing mercies of God, siblings, I urge you to present your bodies to God as a living offering or sacrifice, consecrated and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. That's what we're dealing now with, the reasonable worship of how do we live? What's a reasonable way to live worshipfully in light of a universal reconciliation, in light of an eschatological 
last judgment, which is a philanthropic act of God, not an act of God's wrath. The last judgment is God's philanthropy, the expression of how you cannot believe, and I can't either, how much God loves human beings. Look at the human condition, and you don't see much you want to love. Look at your own human condition. But God loves the hell out of the human race. He's a philanthropist, philanthropist, a lover of mankind. He, how he loves us human beings. And he demonstrated it at the cross, and he redemonstrates that same love in what we call the last judgment, which false doctrine will cause you to fear. Because of the demon doctrine of hell. Which Jesus rebuked when demons spoke of him coming to torture them in Romans, or make that Matthew 8.29. Have you come to torture us before the time? Jesus basically said, shut up. Because that itself, that is an egregious heretical statement. He's not, there isn't a time when he comes to torture his creatures, fallen angels or fallen man. He does not do that. That's why he said, shut up. Go spend some time and some bacon. Go into the pigs. We've got time for this kind of nonsense. It was these demon spirits that told this converted shaman that the creator spirit that the Christian missionaries were talking about, some of them were evil missionaries. They did evil things, including rape people. Some of them were real missionaries. And this guy detected, he said, some people say they know this creator spirit, but they don't do like he does. Others, he said, do like he does. They love like he does. They're good to my people. They bring love to my people. And he met this Lord and Savior. But, he said in his own story to this author, the spirits that he had said that that spirit of the creator spirit of the Christian missionaries, Yai Pada, which we know as Yahweh, Christ, Yeshua, is an unfriendly spirit, and he sends people to a fiery pit that they can never get themselves out of after death. The demon spirits told him that. The demon spirits told him there was a fiery pit after death, where the unfriendly spirit, Yaipada, Yahweh, tortures people. That's why when the demons said it to Jesus, he said, shut up, get out. He didn't even want that kind of doctrine uttered. Imagine when it's uttered in churches, what God wants to say. There are times when Jesus is mad, and one of them is Mark 3, 5, when he was in a synagogue and he was angry at the hardness of heart. It made people hate the idea of his restorative justice. And he replied with his wrath by healing the man with a withered hand in front of them. That's astonishing to me. It's astonishing. So by the ever-renewable and renewing mercies of God, since this is rooted in Lamentations 3, where it talks about his mercies being renewed. I urge you to present your bodies as a living offering, consecrated and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. 
As a result of this, do not be conformed to this age. And whenever you're speaking of this age, you're speaking of one word that describes it. Transient. Passing away. As a result of this, do not be conformed to this transient age, but be transformed, not reformed. That's this age. Transformed. That's the age that has come about with the Christ event. It's invaded this age. Be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking and intending. Reflecting and judging and deliberating, all those things. A transformation in your, well, it's an epistemological transformation from the inside out. Performed by God from the outside in, adventitiously. Resulting in the affirmation or that means your personal affirmation of the good, the well-pleasing, and the completely attained will of God. In other words, this new livingness affirms or calls good Jesus Christ's finished work of redemption, the completely attained will of God. Our lives, in other words, conform to the age to come, become a miniature kind of demonstration of the universal reconciliation. That's what he's talking about here. That's going to take a a few years to unfold. One of the reasons why I'm less frequent in my teaching is I have to get these things squared away and I don't want to do it in a haphazard way. Then he says in verse 3, 4, through the apostolic grace, and I say apostolic simply because of Romans 1, 5. He was given apostleship and grace, grace and apostleship. Through the apostolic grace that was given to me, I say to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think. And as we know, right here, he commands against all boasting in selfish pride related to and rooted in group biases, especially the bias of Gentile Christians against Jewish saints, which he hammers in Romans 11, and also Jewish Christians against Gentile or pagan saints, which he hammered between Romans 1.18 to 3.31. Then he says in Romans 12.3b, instead, it is necessary to think reasonably Worship reasonably, think reasonably, as each one has been assigned, listen to this now, assigned faithfulness as the measure and standard of judgment. He's not saying here, in my personal view and conviction, which God always has permission to change, he's not saying that each one of us was given a certain measure of faith, you get this measure, someone else gets this measure, someone else gets a great faith by which we judge. He's talking about you all have the same standard and measure to judge by, and it's Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness. So I don't look at someone and say, they have great faith, they must have 
been really justified. I say they are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ like me. So I translated it this way, and I'm sure it'll be revised from time to time, but instead it is necessary to think reasonably as each one has been assigned faithfulness, Christ's, as the measure and standard of judgment. Now, we're doing a scaled-down pincer movement, taking Romans 12 and 13 and doing what I did for the epistle at large, and taking a pincer movement from Romans 12, 1 to 3 to the end of Romans 13, 13 11 to 14, and I want you to just notice a couple things about it. This isn't a, an in-depth exegesis, a scaled-down version of the pincer strategy. Consider Romans 13, 11. And this, Paul says, knowing the time, knowing the time. What time is it in God's plan? It's 10 of 8 in New Kensington, but what time is it? I'll tell you what time it is. It's the turning of the ages. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to rise up from sleep. And this also is found, there's a tremendous kinship here between this verse and Ephesians 5.14. Awake you sleeper and rise from the dead, which in turn is a reference to Isaiah 60 and verse 1 which is the message to true Israel. And God says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord shines over you. Do you realize what Paul's doing here? He's not putting that out to a future fulfillment only, but to an even now fulfillment to the Israel of God. Know the time. Paul assumes that they know the time. I assume you know the time. I don't assume that you don't. I assume that you do know the time. For now our salvation is closer than when we first believed. If you knew the time, you'd move heaven and earth to get to church to hear the word. More than you'd move heaven and earth to get to a pirate game. And again, that's not judging. I'm not sermonizing, I'm not preaching, I'm not legalistic. I'm just saying, what's important to you? What's important to you? And that also assumes that the word is being preached when you go to church, not just going to church. That's reformation of, the of, of someone's behavior. It doesn't do anything. You just behave better, you're a churchgoer. Big deal. So are the Pharisees, the scribes, those who said crucify. They were big synagogue goers, churchgoers. Talking about the word. For now salvation, that means our salvation, our salvation, obviously he's referring to that which is going to be then completely, the parousia of Christ. When our salvation comes into its completion, when even our bodies are redeemed from their slavery to corruption and death. Now our salvation is closer than when we first believed. That is, when God first evoked faith in us, Now the night is almost over. The day is near. So put off the works of darkness. And again, we made that like last week. That, that means like you put off your night clothes and put on the armor of light. Don't go to the get-go with your pajamas on with salt stains on the bottom because you've been walking in the snow. 
put on clothes that are appropriate to the daytime. Which for me would be boots, jeans, and a black t-shirt, which is formal, formal dress. If that's formal, what kind of sacrifice do you think I make when I have to put a suit on Sunday morning? I'll tell you that. But anyways, and put on, so put off the works of darkness like you put off your night clothes and put on the armor of light. That means awake not just to live, but with readiness to do battle in the apocalyptic war. Let us walk in a way, verse 13, that is appropriate for daytime. That's the age that has broken in with the advent of Christ, with the event of his death, burial, and resurrection. Not with excessive partying and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in quarrels and in party strife, factionalism rooted in group bias, rooted in turn in the desire to have preeminence over others, to be their Lord, to lord it over others. Instead of lording it over others then, which is the real desire of the flesh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of wanting to be Lord, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh That's the apocalyptic actor, the apocalyptic personage, we could say, of the flesh. That is, for its desires. The desires of the flesh here refer specifically to expressions of the impulse of desire of the flesh. And the flesh here is likened to or equated with the power of sin under the reign of death. Now, what should strike us here? Now, that was very light treatment of those two passages on either flank of Romans 12 and 13. What should strike us here is first that in both of these passages there's a reference to the turning of the ages. Be not conformed to this age and knowing the time that the night is far spent. That age is passing. It's transient. It's almost over. So the first thing that should strike us is that in both of these passages, Romans 12, 1 to 3, and 13, 11 to 14, there is a reference to the turning of the ages, which is now. The turning of the ages. The ethic that Paul is espousing here is one of disconnected or disconnection entirely from this present age. And conformed rather to the age that has come about with the Christ event. When Christ isn't your Lord, you make way too much about who the president is, either for him or against him. It's like the president in the White House, whoever he or she is, is the one who determines my life. And so if the wrong one gets in, I'm going to be in despair. If the right one gets in, I'm going to be in ecstasy. That's because your Lord isn't Jesus Christ. Don't have confidence in princes, the Bible says. Why would you have confidence in leaders? Place your confidence in the Lord. You'll never be disappointed. I'm glad he's in office as the great high priest. And so I actually am in awe at the battle going on politically today because both sides put way too much stake on who the president is. 
as if that's a life-determining reality for them. Both sides in this battle ought to be ashamed of themselves if they're that radically attentive to who the president is or isn't. It's actually pathetic. It's, it's a cause of great sorrow to yours truly to see that. But this is the turn of the ages. The one that Paul, the ethics Paul's talking about is an ethic that's disconnected from this present age and conformed rather to the age, aeon, that has come about with the Christ event and which is determined by the kind of love that he demonstrated, self-giving love for the other at the cross. For at the turning of the ages, that's how I would translate Hebrews 9.26, Suntalaya, we'll be doing much more on that. At the turning of the ages, Christ appeared to put away sin by the offering of himself. This is striking, too, when we consider that the reasonable act of worship that's enjoined upon us as saints in Rome and all those saints in the presentation of ourselves is present, it's reasonable that you present your bodies as a living offering because your great high priest presented his body as an offering to put away sin. In this priesthood, the priest is the sacrifice. He's the offerer and the offering as Pastor Messick's message brilliantly brought about. So in our priesthood, we're priests, but we're the offering. We present ourselves, our bodies, which is a pars pro toto for our whole being. As 1 Peter 4.19 says, and this is good advice, commit your souls to a faithful creator. Give everything you are to him. Entrust yourselves to a faithful creator. The implication, like our great high priest who gave himself to God for us, so we as priests in his household give ourselves to God for others. So we serve one another by love, as Galatians 5.13 says. In Romans 13.11-12, Paul assumes that his readers know what time it is. That is, that it's the turning of the ages. And therefore, there is an ethic. And that's a weak word, even if it can be called an ethic. I'd rather call it God-approved livingness. There is a God-approved livingness, particularly for this critical time. We don't have to love our enemies when Christ's parousia comes because there won't be any enemies. Now's the time we get to do that. Even now at the turning of the ages, notice that again, I love the new analogy of the present and the future brought about by Eberhard Jungel. He said, no longer is it really good to say now and not yet, but he says even now, but then completely. 
So I would say, even now, at the turning of the ages, while the night is still here, but it's far spent, while the day is about to dawn in the parousia, we can participate in a meaningful measure in the kind of livingness that will one day be universal and complete beginning at the parousia, the coming of Christ. And a livingness that was representatively completed already for the universe of humanity in Jesus. When his obedience was completed at the cross and rewarded in his resurrection. The specific ethic for the turning of the ages is radically Christocentric, thoroughly spirit-actuated or activated, and securely anchored to our co-crucifixion, co-burial, and co-resurrection with Jesus the Christ, from whose love we can never be severed. Romans 8, 35 to 39. So next, where are we going next? Here's a preview. Hopefully, we're going to see how prominently placed our references to the dynamic state of love between 12, 1 and 3, 1 to 3, and 13, 11 to 16. We have a few references to the dynamic state of love. Love is mentioned, but not just mentioned, mentioned in a prominent headline in which it shows that the dynamic state of love is the only state that gains God's approval and the faith that works by love. We find it in, and you can look these up on your own. If I had homework, I'd assign it, but I don't because this is all about grace. We will hopefully observe how prominently placed are the references to love between Romans 12, 1 to 3 and 13, 11 to 14, namely 12, 9. 12.9 serves as a heading. Let your love be without dissimulation. That is, let it be across the board. How about Romans 12.10? Love, again, the dynamic state of love. 13.8, where it's, we looked at it last week, that dynamic state of love is, in 13.9, that which fulfills all the law. The intent of God in all the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. And how it's used in 13.10 twice. So between these two passages that we just looked at, we have the dynamic state of love. Here's another forecast of things to come. Remember Philippians? Philippians 1.9. We have not flanks, but banks. Banks, river banks. River, two banks. River, love. Let your love increase, banked on one side by epinosis, Romans 12, 1 to, Romans 1 to 4, the left flank, and on the other flank, eistasis, or the aesthetic of a Christian ethic. Love is banked on two banks. The river of love runs between those two banks. So as we studied Philippians in terms of banks, We study Romans in terms of flanks. But in both cases, the center is the flow of love, God's love, which is the principle of his justice and righteousness. It's not the other way around. So thank you, Father, for the opportunity of once again looking at Romans 
and seeing it in the, gla- in the glare of the light of the dawn of the age that has come with the event of Christ. May we see in the future the universal livingness of all people in a dynamic state of love, but may we see just as importantly the past in which that dynamic state of love was lived for everyone universally by Jesus Christ, culminating in his death. Occupy us with him, Father. Occupy us, our thinking, our minds, so that our minds would be stayed on him, as one translation of Isaiah 26.3 says. Our mind would be stayed on him, and as a result, we'd be kept in perfect peace. These things we ask with absolute confidence that they will be done, not only to our satisfaction, but to the exceeding of our expectations. And with this same act of faith, we present a reasonable worship to you,